From local to global, we bring you the best conversations with your favorite athletes and Olympians. This is the Olympics.com podcast. podcast. Welcome to our latest Olympics.com podcast. Tom here with you again, and I'm so lucky to have this job, to be able to have extended chats with some of the best and brightest from around the world. But, you know, I'm human. I do look forward to some of them with a little extra juice, like this one. I love tennis. Used to play a lot. Not very good, but I've always been a huge tennis fan. I can remember way back the feisty old days, the Johnny Mac versus Jimmy era. John McEnroe and Jimmy Connors, the bad boys who were so good. We're about to chat with John's younger brother, Patrick McEnroe. An outstanding tennis player in his own right, but hey, when you're Johnny Mac's little bro, you're always going to exist in the enormous shadow of a superstar. I remember saying, you know, Mom, John's number one in the world. You know, there's not uh, many other people uh, that can be compared to him. To his credit, Patrick's thrived in many endeavors. First, as a professional tennis player, he won a lot, more than $3 million in career earnings, and that was years ago, and it went a little further. He won a major championship, the French Open doubles title in 1989 with Jim Grab. As Olympic experience, as the captain of the USA's 2004 Athens Olympic tennis team feeling the almost out-of-body experience of opening ceremony. Yeah, I have great memories of uh, being at the Olympics in 2004, one of the highlights of my career, and great memories of being there. After his playing days, Patrick won a Davis Cup title as captain of the USA's Davis Cup team, the longest-serving USA Davis Cup captain ever. He was also general manager of the U.S. Tennis Association's Player Development Program, you're probably more familiar with Patrick McEnroe as a savvy tennis commentator with CBS Sports and now ESPN. Also helps run the John McEnroe Tennis Academy. Lately, Patrick's been a host of his own Holding Court podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And just recently, this spring, named the president of the International Tennis Hall of Fame in Newport, Rhode Island. Almost as famous as his wife, Melissa Errico. Tony Award-nominated Broadway actor, singer, recording artist, writer, and mother of their three daughters. Olympics.com podcast. So in short, Patrick McEnroe's constructed an incredibly successful life. And what we all love about the McEnroe's is the boys speak their mind, straight shooters. But more importantly, probably invested in making tennis thrive on an increasingly complicated world stage. Patrick, welcome to the Olympics.com podcast. What a thrill it is to have you with us. It's great to be here, and I appreciate you having me. Yeah, I have great memories of uh, being at the Olympics in 2004 when I was the coach of the men's mm -hmm. team there in Athens. So that was uh, one of the highlights of my career and great memories of being there. Great. We'll get to that in a minute. I, I just ran down your bio in our open, and what a life you've lived uh, and so much more to come. You're a young guy. Uh, with a birthday, uh, early happy birthday to you. Thank you. Uh, but take us back to the most defining moments in your life. Maybe, you know, great adversity, uh, maybe one of your many accomplishments. Maybe it's parenting three girls. I have three kids, an older, yeah. you know, a daughter and two boys. It's kind of the same world. It's, you know, it's different. But give us a sense of maybe the most defining instructional times in your life. Uh, great question. Um, you know, I'd probably go back to when I was a very young kid um 
one of the pictures I have in my office at our tennis academy, the John McEnroe Tennis mm -hmm. Academy, where, where I'm the co-director, which I've been there for about six years now since I left um, my role with USTA. I have a picture of myself um, and there's a group of other tennis players in the picture from the Port Washington Tennis Academy. I know you're a New York guy, so you know that area. Yeah, for sure. Uh, close to where I was born and raised in Douglaston, Queens. And that's where my brother and I got our start in tennis at this academy. And I was five years old and John was 12. So we were seven and a half year difference. And the picture I still have is, is I'm the littlest guy. And there's all these, you know, nine, 10, 11, 12 year old kids with Lucy Hopman, who was the wife of Harry Hopman, right. who was legendary coach in Australia. And um, he came to Port Washington and, and that that was actually how John got a scholarship to go play there because my parents took him to a tryout when he was about nine. And Harry Hopman looked at him and said, um, we'll take him. He's going to be number one in the world. Wow. Uh, now. The story, the, the real story is that apparently he said that to every family that showed up <laughs> with their kid. But in this particular case, it happened to be right. So anyway, in this picture. It, it lists these other players and some of their accomplishments. And then it says the last sentence on the picture says young chap on left is five-year-old Patrick McEnroe, brother of highly ranked in the East, John McEnroe. So it, it's sort of funny because, you know, obviously I've had to live my life uh, being John's brother, also being Mark's brother. I have another brother named sure. Mark who, who never got into pro tennis or, or really competitive tennis. Um, so, you know, my life in a lot of ways was sort of defined by that comparison um, as I was growing up. Mm -hmm. And so along the way, Tom, I had to make conscious decisions at different times in my life as a teenager, as a kid deciding where to go to college when I ended up following in both of my brother's footsteps and going to Stanford leaving college, deciding to go into, you know, take a shot at pro tennis. After playing pro tennis, you know, I had the opportunity to work in television. But, you know, so it was always like kind of following what my brother had done. And along the way, there are a lot of naysayers. You know, you don't want to do that. I remember when I was getting recruited to go to college, um, coaches from other universities, because I was you know, number one or two in the country as a, as a 17, sure. 18 year old in the U S where so I was highly recruited. And uh, some of the other coaches would say, you don't want to go to Stanford. You know, you're going to be compared to your brother. And I had to kind of look in the mirror and say, well, I'm probably going to be compared to my brother, no matter what, you know, and, and just the fact that I wanted to continue to play tennis was part of that. So there were many different times. Uh, that was a couple times. The other time that I really remember vividly was when I graduated from Stanford. And I actually graduated in, in actually less than four years. Um, and, but I played on the team for all four years at Stanford. And my senior year, I had a, you know some of my best friends in the world I went to college with. We're not tennis players. And we were having a party. And I remember I couldn't party that much on graduation day because I had to take the law boards the next day I was considering wow. going to law school because my dad was a lawyer. Right. My brother, Mark became a lawyer. 
And my mom was sort of nudging me in that direction because she was worried that I wasn't going to be as good as my brother. And, you know, and I was going to have to deal with, you know, continue to deal with that in pro tennis. And um, I remember saying to her, you know, mom, John's number one in the world. You know, there's not uh, many other people uh, that can be compared to him. So when I got the law boards back, I studied really hard and um, I actually did pretty well on all the practice tests. Uh, but I wasn't a great test taker for some reason. And when I got the scores back, I showed them to my mom and she said, son, I think professional tennis is in your future. You know, So um, anyway, that's a joke. But uh, the truth is, my brother, John, was always a great supporter of me in, in those years when I was like sort of deciding, do I want to give pro tennis a shot? And, um, you know, that's something I've had to just constantly look at and decide what does Patrick McEnroe want to do? Right. Like, what's in my heart? What's right. my tell me to do? And I think throughout the years, I've always followed that. And it's been, um, you know, I've been lucky enough to be in, to get into broadcasting right after my playing years um, were coming to an end as they were coming to an end. So I had some opportunities that I probably wouldn't have gotten unless my name was McEnroe. Um, but I feel that I was always ready for those opportunities. And the fact that I'm still with ESPN, you know, 26, 27 years later, I guess I did okay. Yeah, no doubt. And you communicate well. And those of us who've watched you over the years, uh, you know, it's great. I read excerpts from your book, Hardcore Confidential, and I, I love so much of it. I'd love to get into other things. But you do describe in great detail what it was like, and you touched on it just then, growing up McEnroe in the shadow of the almost maniacally intense and, of course, galactically talented and successful brother. You had a courtside seat for the highest highs, best player in the world, lowest lows, you know, sometimes expressing his dissatisfaction with certain on-court situations. How did how did you deal with those polar opposites? Because on one hand, you're proud as can be, and then sometimes you're like, I don't know what happened to him. <laughs> yeah, well, we definitely had some um, conversations around the dinner table, you know, especially when John was young. I mean, mm -hmm. young sort of going out on the tour. He never had these types of intense issues as a kid, by really? the way. He was, he was a, you know, obviously, as you said, extremely talented, you know, phenomenal athlete yeah. um, in everything he did uh, and very competitive. And my parents were very competitive. In fact, many of us think that it was my mom who kind of instilled this intense, you know, drive in us because my dad, my parents met when they were very young, you know, 20, 21, uh, they were both working in New York City. They both come, my mom had come from Long Island, had come from nothing in her family. My dad was similar. His parents were Irish uh, immigrants. And he had, you know, basically nothing growing up in the city. So he was a very smart guy. He he finished high school at like 16, wow. went to college at uh, Catholic University as a 17-year-old, went to D.C. on his own, finished college when he was 19 or 20 and he went straight to law school. he went actually came straight back to new york that's where we met my mom and he was working um in a law firm but he'd go to law school at night wow and working all day and my mom was an emergency room nurse working in a hospital uh, my mom finished number one in her class tom in high school and she went to her parents who were obviously from a different generation and she said i'm going to go to college because, you know, I want to go to, I want to get a, a yeah. degree in college. I said, you're not going to college. You're a woman. 
You're going to nursing school. And she, so she went to nursing school in Manhattan wow. from, from way out where mm-hmm. she was way out in Greenport, Long Island. So that's where she met my dad. And anyway, they got married. Oh, uh, my dad was in the Air Force in Wiesbaden in Germany. That's where John was right. born. Actually, he came back to the U.S. So when um, my dad was sort of working his way up um, and he was finished law school and he came home and he was very proud. He said, my mom's name was Kay. He said, Kay, look, I finished number two in my class. And she said, who finished one? <laughs> so, so, so John used to, you know, we used to tell that story because you know, my mom had a little bit of that. Like, why are you going to do this unless you're going to be the best? Sure. You know, and it turned out with John, you know, that's what happened. And John was not only an, a great athlete, he was a great student. He was smart as a whip. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we just had this this desire. So for me, I mean, let's be honest, I wasn't as talented as a player. Um, I wasn't even as good of a student as John, you know, in in school. I had to work my ass off Mm -hmm. to be, you know, as good as at least when I made it into the pros. You know, as a junior, you just kind of win on your talent. And I was, you know, a great junior player. Mm -hmm. But um not that John didn't work hard. I mean, of course he did, but he, he just naturally had this so much intensity. So I sort of came from the other side where I had to really grind it out, you know, even to make it to, you know, top 30 in the world, which I did. Um, so that was sort of where my, my motivation came from was to just try to be the best I could be and get the most out of myself. Um, so every time I've gotten an opportunity, whether it was, initially with ESPN, whether it was with the USTA and Davis Cup, mm-hmm. um, I always tried to really, you know, work my butt off and do you know, do the best I could. And I still do that in, in what I do. And, um, you know, working now, John and I work together a lot at our academy at in the, in the, in the labor cup, you yep. know, doing certain events. Yeah. So it's kind of come full circle. It's, you know, we both um, sort of realized the strengths that we each bring to each other, even though, you know, he's Johnny Mack, he's one of the all-time greats. Mm-hmm. But I think uh, we both realized over the years that, you know, us doing more things together. And certainly one of the great things for me in broadcasting has been able to work with John. Yeah. And um, I saw that coming years before it actually happened, Tom, because I knew, you know, as ESPN was growing and I continued to try to, not only be an analyst, but be a play-by-play guy, yep. learn how to do what you do, you know, host my own show, be a studio host, do my own radio show, uh, which I continue to do to this day. Right. And I, I really enjoy it. So I think that's made me fairly versatile in the in the broadcast world uh, so that when my brother did come on to ESPN, he didn't just take my job, you know, <laughs> which is which is what easily could have happened. So uh, it's been a great run and I'm still enjoying it. I'm in, as you said, my birthday's coming up. I always celebrate it at Wimbledon because it's July yep, 1st. Yep. Although Wimbledon actually starts on the 3rd this year. Oh. So I'm thinking I'm, you know, maybe try to stay home for that one extra day so I can be with my wife, yep. my daughters, who I, you know, you mentioned my three daughters, they go off to summer camp right away. The, the, my twins yeah. are 14 um, and they love it. And they're, you know, that's been for personally, is that's been the most amazing thing is to be a dad and to have, you know, a great wife and three amazing kids. Um, so certainly from a personal standpoint, that's been uh, the most rewarding thing in the world. 
Yeah, no doubt. Uh, you, we talked about it. You briefly mentioned it, your Olympics experience, 2004 Athens. Uh, I, I have to tap myself on the back. My props to me. I've been to 13 Olympics with CNN wow. and other places and <clears throat> uh, an Olympic channel. Uh, and, and Athens was one of them. And I'm just wondering your impressions, because I remember going over, that was the first one after 9-11, and there was all this concern about security, and I, some of the, 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 the Greeks said, don't worry, we're fine, you know, relax. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, well, Greece is a great place. We actually oh, yeah. had a great family vacation there uh, last summer, so my wife's favorite places um, to go in the world. But anyway, um, you know, we were we were a little bit isolated, which which to me was a little disappointing. Um, you know, we didn't get to stay in the village. Uh, we stayed, you know, the tennis facility was quite, yep. quite you know, far out of town. Yeah. So we did come in um, a couple of the players actually, cause I was a coach. I had to stay, you know, where the U S tennis association right. wanted us to stay in this little hotel, which was fine. Um, but, you know, walking, we did get to walk in the opening ceremonies, participate in that. Um, I well, know a what, couple what, of- how, you know, people talk about walking and opening is unlike you see it on TV and then you're in it right. and it's it's unbelievable. Yeah, it was it was pretty special. I mean, we got to go to the village <clears throat> beforehand. And, uh, you know, of course, for the tennis players, particularly Venus was on the team. Uh, Andy Roddick was sort of, you know, it was in his heyday in 2004, yeah. he won the Open the year before. So those players, you know, for the other athletes, for most of them, these are like celebrities, you know, they're like superstars and and the basketball, the men's basketball oh, yeah. team, I remember was kind of up, you know, coming down. And that was like, you know, it's like the Beatles were coming because uh, <laughs> they had some you know, superstars on that team. But to me, the biggest, the coolest thing was just seeing the athletes from all sports that right. don't get the attention, you know, that spend their entire lives training. You know, I know the other sports have their own seasons and so on, but, you know, for the most part, I mean, the, you know, for a lot of them, it's the Olympics and that's it. Um, and they certainly don't make a living many, most of them in their respective sports. Although that's sort of changed a bit over time as professionalism has, has seeped into a lot of Olympic sports. Uh, so that, you know, being there and kind of feeling that energy, seeing the athletes, not just from the U S but from all over the world, you know, you really, uh, it, it gives it a little perspective. It was like when I first went to Stanford as a, as a freshman, you know, I was like, I thought I was a big man on campus. You know, I was a number one recruit oh, yeah. going to Stanford, you know, they're the, one of the best tennis teams in the country. And you get out there and there's, you know, Pablo Morales, you know, an Olympic, you know, Olympic swimmers left and right, you know, phenomenal athletes and, you know, not to mention brilliant people like students, right? Yeah. yeah. Like, I'm just a tennis player. I mean, who, you know, what's the big deal? So that was sort of a reality check for me in a good way. And then the Olympics is a whole nother thing, you know, because you, and one of the things that I love about being in tennis, Tom, my whole life was <clears throat> the international aspect of it, you know, traveling, yeah. meeting people, um, having something in common with people from Eastern Europe you know, from South America, from Asia, from all over the rest of Europe, uh, and then be, you know, having totally different backgrounds, but yet you come together through this game, you know, through this sport, and you sort of have that in common. And uh, that's been one of the great experiences for me is, you know, I'm back in Paris now, back, you know, at Roland Garros, mm -hmm. and my job is uh, president of the Hall International Tennis Hall of Fame, which is a new role I've just taken on, which I'm excited about you know, to bring more awareness to the Hall of Fame uh, tennis right. players. 
So, uh, you know, to see players that I grew up with, I mean, these are guys I remember, you know, playing as a 15 year old when I traveled to Europe to play and we still come together, you know, a couple of times a year at these big tournaments. And many of them do what I do in broadcasting for their countries and, and so on, or coaches and, and, you know, still involved in the game. So I think that's one of the, one of the great joys of still being around involved in tennis is that you get to continue to participate, you know, if you're lucky enough, like I've been in the game worldwide and still stay in touch with all these great people from all over the world. Yeah. I love the excerpt in your book where you talked about Jose Aguero. We don't have time to get into it, but the detail about how, you, you know, you said the Europeans have really, you know, the U.S. should learn it, you, your top spin and fitness and, you know, all that, which again, we don't have time to, but I, the detail in that was, was great. Uh, and I like the way, as you know, we, we we've kind of touched on it, but cultivating a safer environment for Olympic athletes, it's kind of one of the core missions of the IOC, pursuing the best ways to, you know, facilitate mental health and wellness, and certainly a mission that you're on as well. It, it's crucial, you know, for the, you know, the young people need to, <laughs> yeah. you know, to, but, but it's, you know, we're talking about it more, which is a, a beginning. Yeah, no, I think it's, I think it's, I think it's really important. And, you know, I've done a whole, month or two on my podcast just with you know mental health experts from different backgrounds you know sports related obviously um and i think you know just trying to do my part in a small way to continue the conversation because uh i think when you hear athletes obviously naomi osaka comes to mind a couple years ago here in paris you know being willing to talk about it um and it's not easy you know it's not easy because you know there's backlash um against it you have to deal with then you know the press and a lot of questions about it and the players um i think are getting more comfortable you know discussing it and i think that's a great thing i mean jim lair who's one of the great uh mental performance minds in the world who's now 80 years old and i had him on my podcast um you know a month or so ago and he's written 18 books on the topic he was writing about this and talking about this when I was a teenager, wow. I remember growing up and, you know, being going to a USCA camp and you'd hear from Jim, um, Jim Lair about in those years, they called it mental toughness. Right, right. Mentally tough, you know, and and he worked with Monica Sellis and Jim Courier, you know, even after I had been uh, sort of, you know, hearing from him and he's, you know, he's he still says we still have a ways to go, but he's very happy to to see that people are much more willing to talk about because it, it was quite taboo yeah. back then you know to admit as an athlete that you had mental issues you know mental challenges or however you want to call it and that's why he called it mental toughness you know right. now you can sort of talk about it in a different way mental health and um challenges that everybody faces whether they're big time athletes or not right. so i think for athletes you know, who are looked at in a different way as because of their popularity and because of their excellence. You know, you're a great, you're a professional tennis player or a professional swimmer or whatever it is. You're one of the best in the world at yep. what you do. And th- there comes, there does come a responsibility with that to, uh, I think, handle that in the best possible way um, to, to put, get the word out. So yep. I'm, I'm happy to just be a small part of it. And I think, you know, you're seeing professional tennis players now with, you know, Iga Sviantec's a great example. Yeah. You know, she's got her own mental coach that's basically with her all the time. And it used to be, you know, Bjorn Borg was the first guy that had like a full-time coach. Remember Leonard that. 
traveling with him. My brother never had a coach when he was first starting out. Jimmy Connors, you know, had his mom for a while. He had Poncho. And, you know, so it's now you've got the best players have, you know, two coaches, a fitness coach, a physio, a mental coach, you know, they can afford a a cook, nutrition. Yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. (laughs) A racket technician, you know, so there's all sorts of things, but I think it's, it's good to see that a mental performance coach or mental health coach is now talked about in a way that's sort of part of the team of these great. Right. I think it's part of it is, you know, being having society, being willing to make themselves vulnerable so the young people can see and feel comfortable. Um, and it starts with young kids. I remember you described your role as head of the USTA's player development as part parent management. And that's a huge part of this. You, sometimes you can't get to the kids because of the parents need an adjustment, right? Well, the parents definitely in a lot of instances need, need education. And, um, you know, one thing I've learned in um, in my years in 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 the private sector at our academy, and and I kind of wish, I kind of wish I had done that now before I took the USDA job, because I think I've learned a lot more being hands on in the private sector, hmm. um, and you know, watching kids of all backgrounds, all levels, and for the most part, Tom, I've come to this realization probably 98 percent of the kids that make it to the pros make it because they're just better you know genetically they're better right and they obviously train hard like the other kids and you know as you get older you you need to train a little smarter and better and harder as you get to the pros which is something obviously i learned i think it's more relevant now because there's just more kids playing and there's more kids training le- almost like pros when they're young. Right. And most of them have no shot of being pros. Right. But they're training like pros. And so you have to get through to the parent, I think, as a parent, you know, initially you think it's kind of up to you. You know, like you make it available to your kid. And if you push them and drive them and you can give them the opportunities like that, that's going to make or break whether they make it. And the truth of the matter is it's not right. the truth of the matter is, you know, obviously you, the kid needs to love it. Number one, because to get really good at anything, particularly a sport, when you're a youngster, a teenager, you need to love it. You know, you need to have a passion for it because it's hard. Yeah. You know, tennis oh. is a very hard sport to master. Um, it's a sport where you lose all the time. You're on your own. Um and it's, you know, you talk about mental health. There's a lot that goes along with it. So I, I think that for the parents, again, you want to be supportive. You want to, as a parent, you want to give your child, if if you can, the opportunity to do it. Um, but it's really not about you at the end of the day. A lot of parents, I think, think it is. And as the kid gets older, usually that starts to change a little bit. Um, but it, it, you know, that that is definitely an issue that, and not just in tennis, but I think that is uh, rampant, particularly as I call it the over-professionalization of youth sports. Yes. Happened in all sports, you know, and I see it in, in, in my area where I live and just outside New York City. You know, lacrosse is very popular, yeah. soccer, all these sports. And squash, for example, is a big sport. And these kids are essentially, you know, competing to get into college. Yeah. You know, to get, you know, to get a leg up, to get into college, not even to become pros. Right. 
Um, so that makes, you know, ramps up the pressure a little bit. Again, as long as the family, the parents, the kids, get, you know, want to do it, make the sacrifices and really love it, um, then I think it's a very positive experience for everyone involved. How far away is an Olympic gold medal from a major championship trophy in the player's eyes? Uh, is, is it like the fifth major? I, I get a sense because of the, the dynamics of the Olympic tennis tournament, it's, it's just different. Belinda Benjic has a second gold medal point. Quite possibly a life-changing moment, biggest moment of her career. To be an Olympic champion, to be the first Swiss woman to win Olympic gold at a tennis event. She's got it! Belinda Bencic is the Olympic champion! I think it's pretty big now. I mean, I'm not going to say it's as big as winning a major, but it's pretty close. And I think for certain players, depending on where they're from, it might even mean more. I mean, I think it was Elena Dementieva won the gold. Um, she had been close to winning a major, you know, never won one in, in singles. Uh, Mark Rosé, remember, won the mm -hmm. gold for Switzerland. You know, those are players, obviously, that didn't win majors. If you're going to ask, you know, the all-time great, I mean, obviously, Roger Federer was was desperate to try to win a medal. Right. And he ended up winning the gold in doubles, never won it in singles. Right. Djokovic, you know, he's he went through some rough moments, never won. He has a bronze, that's it, right? Yeah, he's got a bronze. You know, Rafa obviously talks about that as being one of his great accomplishments. Um, I, you know, I was I was skeptical initially when tennis came back into the Olympics, but I think it's been great for the game globally. I mean, you see players coming, you know, you got Sitsipas now, you got Sakari from Greece, yep. you got countries, uh, Tunisia with Anjabor is an amazing story. Would that have happened without tennis being in the Olymp the Olympics? Maybe not. You know, I mean, tennis has always been global. There's always been, you know, the dominant European countries and the U.S. and Australia. But I think it's opened the doors for 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 other countries because they see it's part of the Olympic movement. So I think overall it's been very successful for tennis. I still wish it were a little bit more of a team oriented event, mm -hmm. but that's just me. I mean, I love team events in general, and I think yeah. tennis could do more just overall to have, you know, and they, they've, they've tried in the last few years, but there's, you know, the Davis cup, Davis cup is, yeah. you know, which is kind of gone by the wayside, yeah. unfortunately, but you know, the different team competitions, the labor cup, which I've been involved with, with my brother has been great. So I think the players really love it. And I think the fans love it. Um, so I'd like to see a way for <clears throat> tennis to continue to move the envelope um, to push it in that direction of, you know, team events, but it's still, let's be honest, it's still an individual sport, right? It's still the majors, you know, or what really defines greatness in tennis. But I think overall the Olympic movement and tennis being prominent in the Olympic Games has been great for the sport. Yeah. As we wind down, I uh, just want to ask you, uh, I, I like getting these stories because my courtship of my wife was was funny. Can you describe your courtship with the talented Broadway star, singer, and writer, Melissa Errico? I, I know you went to grade school together. How did it come full circle? Um, it's funny. Yeah, we went to grade school at a place called Buckley Country Day School, which was out in Long Island. Mm -hmm which is where our parents sent us uh, to school. And then we, they sent us to a private, another private school for in the city for high school. But anyway, her brother 
Melissa's older brother was one of my best friends all through um, junior high, through, you know, huh. K, second, third grade, through eight, eighth grade. And um, we played on the soccer team together and we were, you know, best friends. And he had his, a younger sister who, you know, in those years, four year difference is a lot. Oh, yeah. Right? <laughs> you know, eighth grade to fourth oh, yeah. grade. Forget that's, it. That's not, yeah, that's not acceptable. <laughs> uh, but I kind of remembered her and, you know, we we had a little there was a little thing. But again, there was such a difference in age that it was, you know, wasn't really happening. So years later, um, you know, I went off to a different high school. Mike and I sort of stayed in touch. He went to a different high school. But our parents stayed very good friends because they used to go to the soccer games mm -hmm. together and to uh, the barbecues at the school and so on. So my parents would always go when Melissa became a star on Broadway, which was very young in her career. She was just had graduated from Yale. And um, she was on Broadway as my as Eliza Doolittle mm -hmm. and my couple other shows. So my my parents would always go see her. And one and one year, um, you know, I had I'd had a few girlfriends, Tom, uh, when I was on the tour. OK, uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's well uh, said in, in college, too. In yep. college, I had a serious girlfriend. Yep. And then um, I was actually had sh my first shoulder surgery. I was in my late 20s and I was pretty depressed because I was like, can't play tennis. Oh, yeah. My arm was in a sling I had, and I went into my drawer in my apartment in New York City. <clears throat> I was like, I got to find you like, I, you know, I, I, I had to look up friends and, you know, kind of look for a different life because I was wow. so used to being on the road. Right. Found the postcard from Mike, my good buddy, who became a singer songwriter in New York City. And I said, huh, I said it, it he actually was promoting a show the next night down in the village mm -hmm. in uh, in the city. And I said, you know, I'll go check out Mike, you know, be good to see him. I said, who knows, maybe Melissa will be there because I'd heard from my parents, you, you know, Melissa's amazing. You got to see her. She's so talented, blah, blah, blah. So I show up there. He's playing with his guitar and there's, you know, nice little crowd at this sort of downtown bar. I'm sitting at the bar having a beer and I'm kind of looking to see if, if I see anyone that looks like Melissa, because she kind of had dirty blonde hair when she was young. And I didn't see anybody that looked like her. So I'm just like, all right, I'll wait till Mike finishes his show. And yep. I go over to say hi to him. He's, he's he's getting all his equipment. I said, Mike, it's Pat. He goes, oh, my God, Pat. He goes, Melissa, Melissa. She was just walking out the door. She wow. was actually there. And she had just gotten out of a relationship. I had just gotten out of a relationship. And the two of us went out that night with Mike. And then the two of us went out and had a burger, you know, two or three in the morning. And we had nothing in common. We, we like to, we, she likes to remind me that she knew nothing about tennis. She was like, didn't even know you could make money playing tennis. And I didn't know much about the theater at all. Um, so the rest was history. You know, we got married a couple of years later. We're actually, we'll be celebrating our 25th anniversary. Congratulations. In December, yep, which uh, is pretty awesome. She was just with me in Paris doing a couple shows. She does a lot of her own concert work now. Not as much on Broadway since we had, you know, the three girls, but now right. they're all three teenagers. So um, she is uh, doing great, and she's a special person. And she's been, you know, obviously a huge supporter of me. And, you know, I remember when I got the opportunity to become the Davis Cup captain. Yeah. And I had to write like a 20 page um, like thesis 
to the to the head of the USDA, the wow. president, Merv Heller at the time, who was unfortunately passed, but he was the president. And I put like my heart and soul into it. My wife is a great writer. She's actually written a bunch of articles for right. the New York Times. So she kind of helped me. And she, you know, she has a great sense of knowing like when I'm all in on something, like this is something I got to do. Right. And that was one of those moments in my life, you know, like it was always my dream to be the Davis Cup captain was one of the, my lifetime dreams. And, you know, it came true. And I had an amazing run there for 10 years. Still the longest of yeah, any. Longest serving. Absolutely. Yeah, so my wife was, uh, you know, has always been there for me in those moments, you know, like kind of crucial moments when um, you're like, OK, like, where's my life going, you know, for the next yeah. 10 15 years. And uh, I like to think I try to do the same for her. Yeah, of course. That's great. Um, I can relate. I, I've been, we just celebrated our 29th anniversary wow. somehow. Uh, maybe in your world, she's the same. I'm, my wife's a saint <laughs> yeah, <there you> go. <laughs> to Absolutely. put up with me. But uh, hey, this is great. And, and you know, I, I mentioned a life well lived with so much more to come. And it's, it's so true. You're, you're a credit to uh, you know, to the future of tennis, keep up the good work with the kids. And, and uh, you, you're awesome. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I pay close attention to broadcasting and uh, you have a great way of expressing yourself. And I like your honesty. You know, that's it's crucial. And we really appreciate you joining us on this Olympics.com podcast. Well, I mean, I appreciate you having me. You, you've done amazing. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm psyched to see you over there in Barcelona because I love when Americans like us head over. I love being in Europe and yeah. Who knows? Maybe I'll join you over there one day. Yeah, it's a great life. Uh, but that's another podcast all itself. <laughs> Be well. Thanks. Safe travels. Thank you. This is the Olympics.com podcast. Podcast. That was a conversation I thoroughly enjoyed. Hope it was obvious for you. Pat hung around and we talked tennis for a few more minutes before finally saying goodbye. And if you have ever heard him call a live tennis match, you'll agree he's very talented and relatable. So much more tennis right here for the clicking on Olympics.com. So much original content, so many assets that I can't name them all. Please go check it out. Something tennis related for everyone. That's it for this episode of the Olympics.com podcast. Hit us up at Olympics with any feedback you have. We love feedback. It helps us get better. You can also hit me up on my Twitter, at TK Sports Tweets. We'll see you next time. For more in-depth and original Olympics-related feature content, search our platforms here on Olympics.com.